the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. In the last couple of episodes, we talked about the, uh, the tendency to have censorship at the field of academia, especially in Western academia, where, uh, to be honest, it's confusing to me because the West is known for open-mindedness, uh, for people to have the freedom to express their opinion. Yet when it comes to the Western academic field that is focused on the Quran or Islam in general, the tendency to always uh, to sanitize anything that is critical against Islam, which, which flies really in the face of what we call academic work. In other words, there is some censorship even at the field of academia. And we did address a number of quotations as we have been doing in the last few episodes from Shoemaker's book. Some came directly from Shoemaker himself. Others, quotations he himself referred to in his book when it came to that censorship or suppression uh, that I called insulting, to be honest, uh, to uh, Muslim minds and even intellectual capacity in general. But my question today uh, to our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith, who is with me here in studio to unpack all of this, is the following. How then can we proceed from here, Dr. J.? Well, there's, there is, we're going to get to that. And before we get into that, I'd like to just bring up one more aspect and that is the other side, because Shoemaker takes on both the problems of, of Smith's idea of speaking within Islam. It must be a believer's Wilford approach. Smith, right? Wilford Smith, yeah. yeah. That takes on, he confronts that, but he also confronts the other. And that is the naturalistic approach. The naturalistic approach starts in the premise uh, that you must eradicate any belief system, which is the other extreme from the other side. Uh, and th- this is J. Samuel Bruce, uh, however you pronounce it, ni- writing in 1987. He talks about this, and, and this is what he says. Naturalism uh, must be understood without the benefit of clergy, that is, without the magisterial guidance of religious authorities, and more radically, without conversion or confessional and or metaphysical commitments about its causes different from the assumptions one might use to understand and explain other realms of culture. It is not necessary to believe in order to understand. Indeed, suspension of belief is probably a condition for understanding, is what he's saying. So this is almost like the opposite of what Smith is saying, uh, uh, Wilfred Smith is saying. And that is that you don't want any influence of belief on what you're, what you're, what you're going to be studying. Now, 
Schumacher says that there's a problem with this as well. You don't want to go to either one of the two extremes. He says, this rejects the idea that religious phenomena cannot be understood and explained using the same methods regularly employed for studying other aspects of culture and society, is what he's saying on page 11. So if when you're studying history, basically is what he's saying, and this is, I agree with him on this. When you're studying history, you do have to see how religion impacts on the believer. You do have to see what the believer is saying. You also have to see what is it that history, history can tell us concerning that, that, that believer's approach. History, historical context is absolutely important, and you need to have the believer's context to understand what was happening uh, to that person in that place. Um, he, when, I, when I look at Abdul Malik, why did Abdul Malik create the Quran that we have today or start the creation of the Quran that we have today? What was his impetus? You need to know what he was confronting. You need to know the milieu, the believer's milieu. Most scholars believe it's because he was starting something from scratch. You and I don't believe that. I think we were very clear that Abdul Malik was actually a Christian of sorts, but he was an anti-Trinitarian Christian who was confronting the Trinitarian formula. But you need to know that environment. You need to know that that the milieu from which he was mm-hmm. talking. If you don't, if you just throw that out and say we don't have to know that, that we must, in fact, don't use a believer's uh, 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 belief system because that will cloud out or that will uh, that will um, com- contaminate the record. No, it doesn't contaminate the record. It actually, it actually refer, it actually embellishes the record. It actually informs us and informs the 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 reality of what happened on the ground. We need to know why certain people did certain things at certain time in certain places. And uh, if you pull that off, out of that and try to be completely secular outside of that environment, you're not going to understand the historical context, nor are you going to make sense of then why something as important as the Quran, for instance, had to be created, why it had to be written. In our context, what we know is it had to be written because of a need for an identity, a uh, to have a religious text for the Arab people in the Arab book, in the Arabic language, for uh, in in the Arab environment that he created, mm-hmm. Abdul Malik is the one that created that environment. So, wh- if we did, if we were going to throw that out and not even look at that, then why will we know why the Quran even began? How could we do this? And so, Shoemaker is making a very good criticism here, and I would agree with him. This is something that we need to do both ends. Don't take either extreme for heaven's sakes. Be informed by the extremes. I don't have a problem with Cantwell Smith trying to make sure that he what he says is from the believer's perspective, but that is not historically accurate. At the same time, don't just take it from a completely secular environment that does, that dispels and disputes and dismisses everything that's religious. Bring the two together and find out really what was happening historically. Or as we have always said over and over again, follow the evidence that's on the ground. It's as simple as that. History demands that, but it also demands that we must make sure that we understand who is saying what they're saying. We do that with biblical studies. Whenever you look at what Paul says in Philippi, what he says in Corinth, or what he says in Ephesus, or what he says uh, in any other city, isn't it interesting that we always want to see what the environment is to understand the context of why he's confronting the whole issue of women in the church in Corinth, but he doesn't do that in Ephesus. So that was a particular problem for Corinth, but it was not a problem in Ephesus. How would we be able to understand that unless we understand the the context? Exactly. And and I don't want to jump ahead here, but, but just to give you an example, I mean, technically speaking, let's use the field of the Quranic studies 
and especially the critical text, meaning you want to trace back the origin or the original, let's say, Quran. You need to do a forensic, basically, analysis. Forensic demands that you follow the evidence, that you keep tracing evidence all the way back to, aha, it could have started it right here. And if that's the case, at least based on my finding today, this could have been the origin. Now, tomorrow, someone might come in and discount all of that I said and find other things. But it's always tracing it backward. Here, it seemed like, uh, uh, Dr. J, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is like a dividing line, meaning like this is the sin or the standard Islamic narrative line. We're not going to exceed it. We're going to start from here and move forward, not backward. Please do that. Now, in the next episode, we're going to actually unpack uh, what Bruce Lincoln does. Uh, and and Shoemaker purposely pushes forward Bruce Lincoln's... And that's Bruce Lincoln that he mentioned in his book. In his book. Yeah. Bruce Lincoln, who has five theses of what we should do. To really do it accurately, why don't we follow these five theses? We're going to unpack that, and we're going to give then Shoemaker's response to that. But that's probably a much more... Uh, adapt, adaptable paradigm, a more realistic paradigm, and honestly, historically accurate paradigm. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, of course, for joining us. As always, I'll remind you to subscribe to our channel uh, on YouTube, Sierra International, and also consider becoming a, a member of our Patreon group. And uh, that's always helpful to us, of course, in first broadening our platform, broadening the number of people who are members that can take our work and spread it in their own immediate sphere. But also it's helpful in terms of its support impact as well on producing such fabulous video series for you. As always, we want to thank you for watching. Thank you for your comments. And we welcome any feedback that you can share with us. Uh, We always welcome constructive also criticism and I mean it because we get a lot of insults and and it is what it is but uh, we always look for constructive criticism that will be a benefit not just to you but to the body uh, everybody else that is watching this as well as as always also we want to thank our dear guest Dr. Jay Smith for his contributions to this series and his uh, fabulous uh, uh, analytical mind where we go through a document in this case this book Uh, Creating the Quran by uh, Stephen Shoemaker, and we're analyzing uh, the content for you uh, to to really synthesize it for you and uh, dissect it, making it easier for you to understand what is this book all about and why it is something that we're encouraging you to go and buy so that at least you are aware of what to expect when you have that book in your library. Thank you, Dr. J. Thank you, everyone. This is Al-Fari. God bless. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAinternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Today we're going to talk about a, uh, a list of theses that a Bruce Lincoln, whom Dr. Shoemaker have basically referenced or quoted, uh, these uh, steps or at least different theses that uh, Lincoln is talking about on how to conduct a research. With me here, of course, to unpack all of that for us is Dr. J. Smith. Dr. Smith, 
thank you again for being here. And uh, we, we closed uh, last time by talking about methodology. Now we're going to uh, at least highlight a methodology in terms of doing a critical study. Yeah, so we gave the criticism of both extremes. They're too extreme, uh, either on the right or the left. You won't, don't want to just talk, uh, speak, and do a study from within, so the, that's acceptable to believers. At the same time, you don't just want to do a secular study that is not acceptable to the believers. You want to do something in between. So what is that? Well, he actually pushes forward Bruce Lincoln's uh, thesis. So I have 13 theses. We're going to go through only five of them. These are the five most important. The number one uh, you, he, uh, is this. What, what person, group, or institution is responsible for a text? So you start up by saying, hold on, who is the author? What is the author? Where is he coming from? What is his audience? What is the context that he's speaking about? And for whose interests is he speaking? What is the agenda? They all have an agenda. And what will they win or lose by writing this text? So if you look at the Quran, those are perfectly legitimate questions to ask. Who is the author? Who is his audience? What's the context? Where? Why, why did he even need to write it? What will he win or lose by writing it? Does he have an agenda? These are perfectly legitimate questions to ask. You do that when you meet a person. You do that when you look at a movie. You do that when you're given a contract. You ask these questions. These are natural questions. If we do that in daily life, why shouldn't we also be asking that of something as important as a scripture uh, that is the... Well, is the foundation for almost 2 billion people around the world and has supposedly been around for 1,400 years, as we're going to see, not 1,400 years. So that's the first thesis mm-hmm. that he would put out there. Any comeback that you have? Did you like that? Are you, would you agree with that? Well, I mean, uh, there is a lot of validity here, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, when you want to do a research, you want to at least make sure that your research is helpful to others. So like you said, if I'm introducing you to someone, I need to know something about your background, your history. Therefore, I'm giving the true information to the other person so that when they meet you or begin to interact with you, first they know where you're coming from, they understand your background, and that would help them also appreciate the stance that you're taking. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, since reverence is religious, scholarly virtue is the more important here. So he is, he does agree with Shoemaker, and Shoemaker was very critical of Cantrell Smith on this, because uh, that you must use reverence, you must only do it from within a believer's uh, environment, from his presuppositions, don't confront that. He said, no, 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 no. Scholarly virtue is much more important than that. We need to go beyond that. Don't just negate it. Don't throw it out. Don't confront just his reverence for it. But at the same time, if it if it hurts their sensibilities, you still got to say it. That's right. I mean, you are as a scholar sharing what you have discovered, right? So right. you discovered in the Quran that it talks about certain thing. Why would I suppress that? That's what the Quran is saying. Yeah. Listen, we know that better than anybody else because almost everything that's been critical of the Bible, it's been very, some of the, some of the accusations have been very nasty. And we still take it. Jesus took it. He took on all kinds of criticism and he's allowed that criticism to exist. And he still forgave them on the cross for even crucifying him. So we do that. It's important that we get beyond that, get thicker skins. Nonetheless, stick to the historical critique. Number three. 
Permit criticism of one's own religion, but not the other, suggests displaced defensiveness as well as Western imperialism guilt. And that's what, this is a real criticism of Smith. Yeah, You can criticize us. You can criticize Christianity, which he doesn't represent anyways. He's very critical of Christianity himself. And so do most Western scholars. They're absolutely hate, they almost hate Christianity. So therefore, feel free. It's open season on Christianity. But do not touch Islam. Don't be that. Don't say anything critical of Islam uh, because there's something different about Islam. Maybe because they're poor. Maybe because they're different. Because the fact that they're the other. Whatever there's a reason, don't touch Islam. That shows a huge defensiveness from the get-go. So you can see that that is a criteria Mm -hmm. that we must, that pitfall we must not fall into. That's correct. Number four. Assuming that all cultures, all cultures, excuse me, were stable with discrete values, symbols, and shared practices, when in reality their internal tensions, conflicts, turbulence, and incoherence, as well as permeability and malleability, are largely erased. This is what Karen Armstrong does. Karen Armstrong, we've talked about her before, uh, who did this biography of Muhammad, and she only uh, wrote about that which she loved about Muhammad. That's right. She discounted other parts, but she, she picked only what suits her own uh, feeling. The noblemen of women. I would love to know. I mean, I, when you read it, you just see she picked and chose. She didn't at all deal uh, with Mary, Miriam. She didn't all deal with Aisha. She didn't all deal with Zainab. She <laughs> completely walked away from these what we call bad breath areas of Muhammad's life and only kept to the sanitized period. And also, she almost had this this view of uh, the noble stat savage. This is typical of a lot of Western researchers. When they leave their own environment, which they hate themselves, and they go to another environment, they fall in love with that environment, that culture. And they, they see them as a noble savage. And they, and they don't use the words. In fact, they wouldn't even use that word. Right. But by doing that, they're, they're almost looking and desiring that there is something Gorgeous and beautiful about the other. Uh, we, we have a, it's called the syndrome. What is it called? The Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. yeah. That, that is typical of this. I've seen this with Peace Corps workers when we were in Africa. They'd come over to Africa and we were living there in Senegal. And they, the first year, they just were in love with everything they saw, everything they touched. Everything was beautiful and so much nicer here than what the, their own environment. After about two years, they were emaciated and they were sick. And they came, they had all these diseases because they assumed that they could live like the others there. And they couldn't. They just didn't have the, they didn't have the, they couldn't withstand all the, they didn't have the immunities to it. And we saw this happen over and over and over again. And this is one thing that's happening with a lot of Western scholars. I assume this is what Smith is. He just had a love for the other more so than his, his own environment, his own culture. And he assumed that all cultures were equally valid without thinking, no, there are some real problems in many cultures. There's some real difficulties. We could go into a whole list of them. And then number five, the scholar's informants, be aware of the scholar's informants because they tend to come from the dominant faction or caste of that culture. And this is a typical problem that I've seen over and over again. And that is whenever you're looking to see who is it that represents Islam, be careful who those representatives are. Right. We see this all the time here in the United States. I talk to my, pers- uh, my, my friends or I talk to whole crowds and I say that Islam has some real problems. It is a very violent religion. And suddenly 
someone raises their hand and says, yes, but my grig grocer down, down there, he's the most beautiful man in the world, and he's a Muslim, therefore I reject what you're saying, Islam is not violent, because my green grocer is not violent. And that's true, that usually the people who are come over here, the Muslims I meet here in America are the best people in the world. I remember a scholar from the University of Chicago one time confronted me when I was talking about what Islam teaches and why there is this tension between uh, the peaceful side of Islam and the violent side of Islam. And I was just sharing from the Quran, you know, here is what the Quran says, here is where people get the idea of violence, here is what people get the idea about peace, that yes, there is, there is abrogation and things like that. And and then a scholar, apparently a scholar at the University of Chicago, stood up and says, that's not true, because I wrote about the peaceful side of Islam, and I disagree with the abrogation doctrine. I mean, this guy, who knows nothing about Islam other than his own research, discredited my own experience of Islam, the doctrine of abrogation, that is Quranic. We studied this, actually, and Nasikh wal Mansukh. I mean, we studied this back home. And like you said, watering down things, focus only on one thing. He probably got his information from his informants as well. I, I had a, a personal experience back in uh, in uh, 1990s. I did a debate at the Oxford Union with Benazar Bhutto, who used to be the prime minister of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So she was opposing me on whether or not Islam is violent and whether it's relevant for the 20th century. And she got up and says, look at me. I'm relevant. I walk like you, I talk, eat, drink, I do everything you do. I live in London, therefore I'm relevant, therefore Islam is relevant. And I got up and I said, I, I kind of laughed at her and I said, you know, uh, BB, that's her name for short. I said, you walk and talk, I'm glad you feel relevant, but you eat like me. You can eat pork like I can eat pork. You drink like me, you can drink wine like I can drink wine. I'd like you to get on television right now and go to Pakistan and tell the whole Pakistan people, now you can eat pork, you can drink wine because I tell you can do so. I said, you may say that in this audience and everybody will believe you and you will be the paradigm that they will model and they will emulate and say, this is true Islam. And they would love that type of Islam, but that's not what this book says. You know very good and well, that is not Islam. Don't call that Islam. Call it Buddhism. Call it, give your own name to it. But that's not Islam. And this is typical of the fallacy that we fall into. And this is exactly what Bruce Lincoln's trying to warn us about. Well, that's, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you for highlighting all of this. Uh, what's next for our audience? We're going to go and we're going to talk about how the Quran was actually compiled. Now we're going to start looking at the compilation itself. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. And we're going to follow what Shoemaker says. He has lots of theories. Some of it you may agree with. Some of it you may not agree with. Let's run with him. Let's see what he says. He's going to get back to what the whole title of the book is. How in the world was this book created? Wonderful. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you, everyone. This is Al-Fadi. Until next time, have a blessed day.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.